Well, they say that hindsight is, is twenty twenty. you know, um, that we see things more clearly retrospectively than we do oftentimes in the present tense. And I think uh, most of us, you and I, would say that that is true. You know, if you could take what you know now and go back to a particular time, you'd probably say that you would have done some things differently, maybe in your marriage, maybe in your career choices, in your school, in your parenting. Um, I know that I, I, I look back and think, wow, if I could go back with what I know now, I, I would change things. And it's interesting that the Lord has arranged things in such a way that, that we oftentimes get clarity after the fact and not in the event. Uh, of course, that's not always the case. Sometimes the Lord does provide clarity in the event. But it seems more often than not that we look back um, after we can't rewind history and realize, wow, I could have done that a, a, a little bit better. I've wondered that over the years, like, why, Lord, do you give clarity afterwards? And I've come to the conclusion that one of the reasons is because he wants us to look back at all the foolish things he did and see that his grace presided over those things. And to remind us that I was gracious even in your foolishness. So that we might be able to give thanks and give glory to God even when we weren't um, all that, plus a bag of chips in our history. Now, um, I know for me that has happened uh, in a lot of areas of my life, but one of them is preaching and teaching. And, um, and this leads directly into what I want to talk about this morning in, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6. But, you know, I, I, I go back and, and, and look at sermons that I've done. And I, I'm, I'm nearing like the 800 or 900 sermon mark. And I realize there's been a lot of messages that I've preached over the years. And, and I go back and look at some of the things that I taught. And I realized, oh my goodness, I can't believe I taught it that way. And it's actually kind of embarrassing. Uh, because um, I wouldn't do it the same way now that I did then. In fact, one example um, is the teaching that Jesus gives on the cost of discipleship. The call to discipleship, and it's, it's recorded in every one of the Gospels in, in different ways and forms. And, and most of you know it. It's, it's just kind of one of those places where Jesus calls out, says, if you want to be my disciple, then this is what it looks like. And it goes like this. And it's, it's the same in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke with, one, with a one-word exception. Where he says, if anyone would come after me, And here is the criteria. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, Luke adds the word daily, and follow me. Now when I preached that message over ten years ago, I leaned very heavily upon the three directives in that call. Listen, if you want to be a Christian, this is what it's going to take. You've got to deny, take up, follow. And as I said, I I would press and did press heavily down upon those verbs, those commands, those directives and imperatives with the assumption that if God's people get what it means mentally and intellectually, what it means to actually deny the sinful self, to take up a cross of selfless sacrificial love, and then to follow, which means to, to subordinate all of your choices to his choice. That's what it means to follow. That if people get what it means, then, then Parkway's going to be a radical place, you know? That people are actually going to deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow Jesus. And, and so you lean heavily upon what we're supposed to do. Now, in preaching it that way, there are people who are convicted. Because it tends to have one of two um, effects on people. To those who have been in the faith for a period of time, it can often make them feel defeated. To others who might be newer to the faith, they'll hear those words, deny, take up, and follow. 
And they'll leave with a sense of invigoration, like, this is what we have to do. Like, let's just go, I'm going to go out and sell my Ford F-250, I'm going to buy a moped. I'm going to devote all of that revenue to the kingdom work. I'll commute to San Francisco on my moped and back. And it might last for a few days or a week or even a month. But depending upon the conviction of those directives themselves, inevitably will leave a person out of spiritual gas or fuel. That is, they will be back to a place where they feel a sense of spiritual inertia. And over time, if there's enough failure, it will turn into a sense of spiritual cynicism, which is, a sen- is, is, is really spiritual disbelief. Spiritual cynicism about the gospel, about Jesus, about the church, because they say it works, but it just simply does not work, in my experience. If I was to preach that passage today, which in one sense I'm going to, I would place the emphasis on something different. I mean, the commands are biblical commands. Deny, take up, and follow. There's no question about that. And if a person's life who says, I'm a Christian, does not in some way show a degree of self-denial of one's sinful impulses, um, an increasing sense of sacrificial love for others, and a willingness to, to subordinate one's life to Jesus, well, then it's not Christianity. But we don't get there, we don't get to be deniers and takers of the cross and followers by simply hunkering down and then trying to deny and take up and follow. There's a deeper truth that makes that possible, which is oftentimes overlooked or de-emphasized. There's a parenthesis, right, what I'm about to say. Bad biblical teaching isn't always false teaching. More often than not, it's biblical teaching with the emphasis in the wrong place. So you emphasize deny, take up, and follow. Well, then that's the emphasis, and it leaves people with the burden of exerting their wills. And they do for a short time, and then they tire quickly. But there's a deeper truth that if I was to preach that passage today, and in one sense I am, I would place an emphasis on a different place. And I believe that deeper truth that unlocks the Christian potential to actually live out those commands in increasing ways um, comes to light in the last part of the story of 2 Samuel chapter 6. In the second half, there is this contrast between David and his wife. Now, let me back up for a second and just kind of show you. This, this, this chapter divides neatly into two in two parallel ways. The first part, which we looked at last week, David goes to retreat the Ark of the Covenant. Not Noah's Ark, mind you, but the Ark of the Covenant. It's followed by rejoicing over the Ark. The people are rejoicing. Followed by God's judgment of a priest by the name of Uzzah. Um, And in that first half, David learned a very important lesson about the Lord, and that is the Lord is holy, and he must be approached on his own terms. That was kind of the lesson of the first half, but You notice the second half is parallel to it. Starts with David retrieving the ark. We'll call it take two or part two. And it's followed by rejoicing. And it ends, the chapter ends with judgment on his wife. Now the Hebrew pronunciation of that M-I-C-H-A-L is Michal. Some people say Michael, but then it sounds like David married a dude. So I prefer not to say David and Michael. It's David and Michal. Kind of sounds like a little, I don't know, Russian with a little French mixed in. David and Michal. 
So you have judgment on Michal. You can see the parallel. One half teaches one lesson about God's holiness and the need to come to God through the blood and on God's terms. And the second one teaches us a lesson um, on dealing with or responding to the presence of God coming into the city. And you see this, this constant comparison between David and his wife, Michal. Two different ways of responding. So let me just kind of draw out those two contrasts and end with um, what I think to be and believe to be and hope to be an application that maybe the Lord will use um, in our, our church. The first contrast is one of center of focus. That is, um, what we observe here in the first part of the second part of the story is, um, is David's response to the Ark of the Covenant for the first time coming into the holy city. And we read verse 13, And when those who bore the Ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Now, now David's doing things God's way. Verse 14, And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the Ark of the Lord with shouting and with the, with the sound of the horn. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out on the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. I think it's safe to say that David is completely preoccupied with the ark, which is a, a pledge, a visible symbol of the very presence of Almighty God. And, and, and the, the way in which David's actions are here described, they are off the charts. He is completely elated. Um, as I said, now doing things the Lord's way. He is overjoicing. I mean, for the first time, this is an unprecedented event, and then for most of us separated by 3,000 years, you don't just sense the passion of it. The ark, that most sacred um, symbol of God's presence was, presence, was in seclusion for 70 years. And um, Moses, four centuries before, said, Someday, the Lord is going to gather in one place his presence, and there the people will come and worship him. One place where his presence would dwell. And that, of course, we know is Jerusalem. And this is the day, after four centuries of waiting, where the presence of God comes into the holy city, the city of Jerusalem, where, where people would worship Yahweh for hundreds of years, and even to this day, the Jews pray towards Jerusalem. So this is a momentous event, the symbol of God's presence making its way up to the holy city. This chapter and the next chapter are the apex of David's life, the presence of God. David only knew the presence of God by a distance, but at this point, it comes front and center, the presence of the Lord Almighty entering the city. Some believe Psalm 24 was written out of this experience. Who is this king of glory, the Lord strong and mighty who enters the gates of Jerusalem? So he's ecstatic. He is, he's, he's singing, he's, he's dancing, he's leaping about. He says that he's wearing a, a, a linen ephod, which is a, it's a, probably, in light of the context, a a rather common priestly gown, which was probably a little bit more revealing than his kingly robes. Why he put on the gown is not specified, perhaps out of respect for the Lord, perhaps as a sign of, of, uh, of purification. We don't know, but he is singing, dancing with this linen ephod on him. It says that all the house of Israel 
was shouting and horns. Now, all the house of Israel, thousands upon thousands of thousands of people in the procession. You know, you hear crowds shout in a packed stadium at an explosive football game, and that's what's happening. Like Israel is on fire because the Lord is entering his holy city. And David is preoccupied, caught up in the moment of being in the presence of the Lord. Meanwhile, camera change, angle change on his wife. She's not a part of the crowd. She's not a part of the procession. It says that she looked through a window. In other words, she's looking down through a window from a distance, and, and she doesn't even look at the ark. And you'll notice in the chapter, she's constantly referred to three times as Michal, the daughter of Saul. As if to give the impression like father, like daughter. The father didn't care anything about the ark, neither did she. The father was concerned with appearances and status, and, and so was she. No, the ark is coming in, all Israel is completely celebrating, and what does she notice? She has her eyes fixed on David. David, preoccupied with the presence of the Lord, she is preoccupied with the way in which her husband is dancing and leaping about. And it says that she despised him. And you talk about monumental example of missing the point. The presence of God is here in David's time. It's one of the most glorious celebrated events in the Old Testament. David is completely obsessed with the presence of God, and all she can focus on is the way in which her husband is acting. Isn't that true a lot of times, that one of our biggest weaknesses is, is, is forsaking the main thing for something of insignificance? You know, you're there and you come to church and you expect and pray for the presence of God to come and in the prayers and the music and the preaching, Jesus is lifted up and all you can think of is, wow, that guy sings way off key behind me. Or I wish that 12-year-old wasn't wearing that baseball cap in, the uni- in, in, in service. Distracted by all the wrong things and missing the blessing of God's presence. Two completely different focuses, centers of attention. David, preoccupied with the presence of God, and she is preoccupied with the way in which her husband is acting. That's the first contrast. But then those, 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 those centers of attention are also accompanied by very different fruits or, or actions. We've already read one of David's fruits, you might say, and that is he has this sense of selfless joy. About him. By selfless, I mean that, that he has taken off typical things we would identify him as the king, the man who's in charge, you know, the grand poobah of Israel. He's taken them off because he has no social concern at this point for what people think of him because he is so intensely and honestly and sincerely overwhelmed with the presence of God in his life that he really doesn't give a rip about what anybody else thinks. It's selfless joy. Now imagine you and I being at a place like that, you know, where, where, where you were so filled and overwhelmed with the presence of God in your life and all that he is, that you really didn't care whether someone saw you raise a hand in worship or, or anything else. Um, what would it be like to be that unrestrained by the fear of what people think? Because you know, it, it, it very much is a confining thing to us, a limiting, paralyzing thing, this fear of what people think, which David, in this point in his life, has none of. Husbands, you know, deciding not to dance with their wives at a wedding because they're afraid that they'll look like Goofy on Valium out on the dance floor. 
or, um, or a wife that doesn't want to invite people over to a home because she's afraid that people might think her home is too small, or if it happens to be a wealthy woman, that her home is too big and ostentatious, and perhaps I will be judged by the thoughts of men as being either too poor or too rich. That's not happening. It's just selfless overflow of joy um, without conscious regard for the thoughts and concerns and judgments of men. That's fruit number one in his life. Selfless joy. There's another fruit that comes out, and that is sacrificial worship. It says in verse 17, And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings. Here's what he's offering. Burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, I'm going to stop right there. This is the fruit number two is that he begins to offer these costly sacrifices of whether it was sheep or bulls or oxen spilling their blood. It says they were burnt offerings and peace offerings, which don't only have to do with atonement, but also in this case with celebration. It's like they're killing the fatted calf because the Lord has, has made his dwelling amongst his people. And they're excited about it. The God is here. He's in our midst. He loves us enough to dwell with us. And so they're offering sacrifices of worship. So he has this selfless joy in the presence of the Lord. He has this sacrificial worship in the presence of the Lord. And then you'll see how it spills over onto the other people. It says that when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings to the Lord, he, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel. He's giving gifts to everybody. The whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And the idea is he is giving to the people from what was sacrificed at the table of peace. A symbol of, of, of being blessed at the table of God. And see, this is, this is David's fruit of his encounter with the presence of God and what's happening is there's this selfless joy before the Lord, the sacrificial worship of the Lord, and this selfless generosity towards the people. Now, I believe those three fruits right there displayed in the life of David are a vivid representation of exactly what Jesus has in mind when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up a cross of suffering and follow. That is the whole of what's stated here of his selfless joy, sacrificial worship, and his generous giving to the people. Tell me that's just not the opposite of self-indulgence. Most of us, when we think of self-denial, we think of a guy in a cave who goes in there with bread and water and maybe a piece of canned chicken for protein. Sits in a cave, isolated by himself. Well, I'm doing this because I'm denying myself. That's a rather ugly, stoic, drab picture of, I think, what Jesus had in mind when he talked about how the presence of God liberates his people to live. He didn't have that in mind when he he said, let him deny himself. What's displayed here is nothing short of beautiful. Self-denial in the Christian sense should be beautiful. Taking the cross of suffering love for people... Generously is beautiful. It's not living in a cave with, 
with, with denying oneself the, the pleasures that, of bread and, and a good conversation and tea and turkey at Thanksgiving. That's called asceticism. And I venture to say that entire, entire approach to self-denial is rooted and plagued with works righteousness. And that's the fruit of David's life. And then again, contrast the fruit of Michal's life. The presence of the Lord has come into the city, and what she do? She looks at David and she despises him in her heart. Now to get back to the story, it says that David had blessed the people. And the idea is that he has gone to the people and blessed them, and finally he makes his way home. You know, your home. It's your place of sanctuary. It's a place where you feel safe. It's a place where there's love. It's a place where there's acceptance. So you can almost picture in your mind's eye, David comes, he swings the door open, and he says, Honey, I'm home. And what does he find? But he finds, I like to think of Michal as a Victorian woman who is so caught up in social status and what it means to, to maintain decorum, seeing her husband act like a commoner wearing nothing but a normal common priestly gown, dancing about like a crazy man overrun with emotion. She gave him the stink eye, you know what I'm saying? Looked at him and just gave him the stink eye, and you could sense the sneer, and what's about to come out of her mouth is nothing less than poisonous sarcasm. This is what she says. Ooh, I backed up here. Did I include that? Good thing I have my Bible with me because I left out a slide. Verse 20 says, And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, and you can sense like the, uh, the poison in her tone, the scorn, how the king of Israel has honored himself today. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of the servants and female servants as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Now the words that she says are sarcastic and I believe also hyperbolic. When she says David uncovered himself, I don't believe for one that that means that he went all natural and street buck naked through the street of Jerusalem. I mean, the Old Testament has so many associations between nakedness and sin, I can't imagine that David would opt for that. In addition to the fact, the text has already said us, he, he exchanged his kingly garments for the normal garments of a priest. And now he looked like just one of the old common people. And that bothered her. David, interestingly enough, Unlike most spouses, say that carefully, because this can be applied in such an undignified and ungod-honoring manner, but David does not bow down to her concern for social status, or for him acting the part to make her look good. So this is what he says in response to her. This part I have. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father. Now that must have stung just a little bit. 
chose me by his own sovereign grace to put me in the throne in place of your father who didn't believe, was concerned with appearances, and feared what people thought of him. Unlike David in this passage. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. In other words, I don't care what you think of me. Because it's not about me. And it's not about your status. The ark has come into the temple or into the tent. It's about him. I will make myself more contemptible, undignified in people's eyes, humbled, self-humiliated, and I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Interesting that the people who were of low class, when a king or a person in authority steps down as one of them, they honor his self-humiliation. While those in power and those in the higher class of society look with contempt on the king who lowers himself. Same thing would happen in Jerusalem when Jesus comes riding in. The people who are the common folk loved him. And the people in power despised him. In verse 23 it says, And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. She looked with disgrace upon David's selfless joy in the presence of the Lord, and then the Lord disgraced her by closing her womb for the rest of her life. Two completely different focuses of life, two very different fruits that come out of that that experience. And the question is, okay, behind these two focuses and two fruits of life, what is core and common? What do we take away from this? You and me. I believe these two individuals, David on the one hand and Michal the other, represent two very different approaches to life. Two very different approaches of life that exist through every generation and exist here in our time. And it comes from the center, these two ways of life, of what is most prized in the inner sanctum or inner room of the human soul. Picture with me that inside of every human heart is a holy of holies. It is the place where we house, revere, respect, dwell on, enjoy the most sacred object of our affection. Everyone has one. Every human soul has one. It's the place where our understanding and affections meet. The sacred center of life called a soul. And everybody has something in there. It's the thing that fuels your fire. It's what floats your boat in the most amazing way. It's what you live for. It's the cause of your life. And it is the purpose of your life. Whatever is in this little place right here. It's what you treasure the most. Michal, David's wife, the daughter of Saul, is someone who, from the text vantage point, places herself there. 
Or to be more specific, she prizes social respect. The reverse of that is fear of losing social respect and the affirmation of people. There is such a close tie between what we desire most and what we fear the most. And it has to do with what's in here. And David was the means to that social respect. I mean, you can, you can sense it. I mean, you know, when he was standing over Goliath with the sword and the head of Goliath, well, then she could say, that's my husband, you know? When they're chanting his praises, well, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands, well, she could say, well, that's, that's my husband. When he conquered the Philistines, two times, she could say, well, that's my husband. When he conquered Jerusalem, she could say, that's my husband. When he built the palace in which she would live, she could say, that's my husband. And now he's dancing around like a commoner in nothing but a priest's gown, and she feels, that's not my husband. There's no benefit now to how you're acting to my husband center, who I am, esteemed and connected, the queen, because David lacked the decorum. He didn't live by the queen majesty's book of etiquette. That's fundamentally about her. And when David performed well, she was happy. She felt worthy. When David decided he was going to worship selflessly, even if it cost him some political points, well, that was a different story. Now, most Christians, you walk around with a microphone and say, well, who's it that resides in your sacred center? And most would say, Jesus, because we've been taught to say that. But I think you and I both know that there's a world of difference between saying something and actually realizing something. That it's very easy for us to put ourselves there in the form of other things. For Michael, David was the one who gave her what she wanted. So in a way, he was her idol. And when her idol disappointed her, she despised it. You can put a child in there, children, or well-behaving children, a beautiful wife, a successful husband, successful ministry, Reputation, right in here. And when that's the case, well then, when what's in here is performing well, and it's the polling points are up, well then you're happy, but when as soon as something happens to this thing in here, well then you're devastated. Happy when your idol is performing well, and devastated when it's not performing well. And I think there's more Christians who probably don't have the right center right here based upon how they act and live and the fruits of their life. What's in here? You know, over the the years I've had opportunities to counsel a number of couples. And the counseling that I give to them, I give to myself and my wife. Everybody needs counseling at some point or another. But typically, and this is fairly common, it's like one spouse will be disappointed at the lack of the other filling their expectations or what we like to think of as needs. That is, their husband isn't performing. 
And then the husband is, is constantly under the judgment of his wife or reversal, the wife of the hu- judge, uh, husband. And he resents her self-righteous attitude. One isn't performing. The other is being judgmental. And they come in completely frustrated at each other because they're not getting what they want from each other. And invariably, one of the questions that I ask of myself and I ask of them, okay, so how is your personal communion with the Lord going? You know, um, are you saturating your life in, in the goodness of God at the cross and the forgiveness of sins and all that he has offered to you in Jesus? And, and, and is he filling your cup? And invariably, one, if not both parties, will say, uh, no. No, we're not. It's just, I'm saying, so, so he's not filling you. Could it be that what you're trying to get from your husband is to fill the place that you feel so empty, and vice versa. And it kind of becomes clear that they're, they're looking to manipulate, squeeze, and then conform the other to be what fills them up. And, and that is, brothers and sisters, idolatry. And that's not self-denial. That's pulling, clawing to get what makes me feel like I'm a person, or worthy, or happy. That's, that's, that's what Michael's doing. David, you're not acting right that makes me feel happy, and so you need to change your ways. What's in here? What's in the inner sanctum? It's one of the most important things that you can become self-aware of is what you're living for, what floats your boat, what lights your fire. Why do you live? Why do I live? And if it's for any other thing than the Lord, well, then it's, It's filling your heart with things that will not last. David is a representation of the other way of life. You you get the sense. What what, what lights his fire? What what, what floats his boat? What is it that is the origin of his life and also the purpose of his life? Well, in the passage, it's it's, it's the presence of the Lord. I mean, Think about it. He's, he's experienced the power of God's grace on the battlefield with, with Goliath. He's experienced the preserving, protecting grace as he was on the run for who knows how long from the persecutions of Saul. He experienced the faithfulness of God when God crowned him in, according to his promise. He experienced the holiness of God when he brought up the ark in a way that was not specified and realized, wow, I shouldn't mess with the Lord because he is loving, but he is a holy God. Now, for the first time in his life, really, now he is in the, the best that the Old Testament has to offer in terms of the visible presence of the Lord. The climactic moment when he is with that visible presence of the Lord and his heart is simply overflowing with the joy with a sense of love that wants to sacrifice and a blessing of the people. The opposite of self-denial. Or to use his words, he, he, he wasn't someone who simply knew God by way of theory, but knew God by way of realization when he could say, you know, Lord, your love is, is better than life. Or he said, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. Um, the children of mankind take refuge under the shelter of your wings. They feast upon the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights, for with you is the fountain of life, the very source of all that is life. That's what floated his boat. It was the presence of the Lord in his life. The ark was the best that he had. And yet it, 
it altered, or should I say, it overflowed in his life that showed a, 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 a self-sacrificing, I don't care what people think about me, I'm going to enjoy the Lord. Here's offerings to you, Lord, because you're that good. He's like this fountain bubbling up and out. And the secret to it was, he had a real vital relationship with the Lord. It was real. It was real. So if I was to come back to the call of discipleship, I think that I would preach it something like this. We are supposed to deny ourselves, take up the cross, and we are to follow the Lord. Or in the actual verbiage, take up your cross and follow me. And the accent and emphasis and the most important part in that whole call is that two-letter word, me. It's not that we deny for nothing. It's that we deny the sinful self for everything. You see? All that God has offered to us, not in a wooden box, but in the person in whom God's presence was pleased to dwell, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, namely Jesus, who is the key to our relationship with God, the forgiveness of sins, life everlasting, hope beyond life, and a world beyond death. And all of it has given, been given to us in him. And when a person authentically and really, by way of the new birth and new creation, experience the wonder of Christ, it changes everything. It reverses the flow from a taker to someone who, who, who selflessly enjoys the Lord without respect to what others are thinking or willing to self-sacrifice for the Lord or willing to bless others at your own personal expense. Why? Because he is that good. So here's, here's a question for you. I, I believe, my personal opinion, I'm not the only one who holds this, but I realize it might be at odds with some other things, but I believe that the crying need of our hour right now is not to do more. The crying need of the hour is to be awakened. To be awakened to the fullness of God in Jesus. Because when that happens, stuff spills out of life. Good stuff. The crying need of the hour is to be awakened. Do you know in the first great awakening, which I believe Robert Coleman touched on, people in the colonies, 13 colonies, they knew a lot about Jesus. The constant theme in the preaching of both John Wesley and George Whitfield was, you must be born again. In other words, you know it, but you have not been touched by the new creation so that you feel it yet. And that's what touched off the Great Awakening. People realized they were adhering to a dead orthodoxy in mind only, and there was no affection to it, which only the Spirit can bring. So here's the question for you. Do you know the new birth? Have you been at any level awakened to the Lord, that he is good, that he's better than life? Or are you settling for or content to have a mere intellectual acknowledgement of him only? I hope, pray, and I hope you hope and pray with me that God will awaken us to the fullness of what Jesus says when he says, follow me.
That's what makes it worth it all and enables us to then actually self-deny and take up a cross and follow in a way that's absolutely and stunningly beautiful to the world. Lord, I thank you for your goodness and kindness, and I just pray that you would do a work in our time of helping us drink deeply and fully from the fountain of life who is Jesus Christ, and that we may, having tasted of him, may bubble up with fountains of living water toward others. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.